This is Get a Real Job, the podcast devoted to people who choose risk over safe bets, who pursue their passion against all odds and are doing what they want, how they want, despite people and sometimes the voices in their own heads telling them they're nuts. When the field that I wanted to work in didn't exist, I created it. The only thing you have to decide is how hard you want to work. I really never went into the design of the restaurant of not succeeding. One way or another, I was going to succeed. I'm your host, Dan Bova, editorial director of entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. And now, get a real job. Hey, everyone. I'm very, very, very excited because today's guest is a glass of wine. The guest is also the CEO of the company that makes the wine. But uh, no offense, Joseph, the stuff in my glass is the star of today's show. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good glass of red wine with well, a long Joseph, journey behind it. A long story. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get right into that because uh, Joseph Carr is the founder of Josh Sellers. And if you spend any time in wine shops like I do, you have seen his handiwork front and center. Joseph, welcome and cheers. Cheers. Salute. Let's get right into it because I mean, I think what you do for a living and what you've created is the envy of thousands, if not millions, of people who wish they could uh, do what you do. So let's careful start. What, Let me careful, guess. careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> Let me guess. You grew up on a winery and it was in your family blood and you just inherited this company and that's how it all took off, right? Yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be great. No, my, my father was a lumberjack from upstate New York, and his favorite glass of white wine was called Budweiser, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I grew up in a lumber mill town, and I worked in a lumber mill, drove a truck, and drove a truck for two summers before I went to college. And then the summer before I went to college, I, I hitchhiked to California. I had long hair. And I stuck my thumb wow. out and I wound up in a place called Napa Valley. And that's where the love affair began. I know it's crazy. So was that, was that a talk? Were you aiming for Napa or that's just where, no. uh, where your ride dropped you off? Yeah. Well, no, I got to San Francisco and I ran out of money and I was juggling on the streets. I had a little radio and I would juggle and collect a couple of bucks to, buy a sandwich and uh, somebody said oh you should go up to napa valley there's a winery up there i go well i don't know what a winery is I've, I've never heard of that before i've never seen a winery before so but i grew up around farm so um i just kind of thought of it as a farm so i, I hitchhiked up there and uh, in 1978 it wasn't napa wasn't like it is today you know today it's a lot of wealthy people and foreign cars and art collections and things like that but back then it was farmers you know and it was people from other countries like Spain and France and Italy that had just brought their culture to Napa Valley and they just wanted to capture this thing called the American dream. And I met a family that gave me a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon and that was it, man. I was hooked. Wow. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) That's incredible. I mean, I could talk to you for five hours about that journey, I'm sure. I know that was a different time, but like sticking your thumb out and getting in a stranger's car and just seeing what happens next. I mean, does that like fill you with awe and excitement or in your wiser days, are you like, wow, that could have gone badly? 
Well, you know, I got picked up by a lot of truck drivers that were going a long distance and they just needed someone to talk to. The only thing they had back then was a CB radio. You know, right. that's how they talked to others. But I mean, most of the journey was sitting in a truck and I grew up sitting in a truck. So to me, it was pretty comfortable. I didn't really, I never had any problems at all. And when I came back, when I came back home, my father put me in his pickup truck and he took me to college. And my twin sister and I, we were the first ones in our family to go to college. And uh, off I went. So I was supposed to. No, well, I, your dad uh, was a lumberjack, you said. So did he imagine that you were going to go into the family business or was he actively hoping you? No, no, that was not an option. Now, there was a woman in his life called my mother, or <laughs> <before> my father, <laughs> who told my father exactly how it was going to go. He never, my mom never let me pick up a chainsaw because half my cousins and uncles didn't have all their fingers or toes. Okay. So she wasn't going to allow that. So she took, I know, it's crazy. Well, my grandpa wow. lost his thumb. It was just came oh, over. my goodness. He cut his thumb off. I'm like, okay, we'll take you to the hospital. Wow. You need, uh, need but uh, no, my mom said you got to go to the library and read books, and and that's what we did. And and I wound up, I wound up in college uh, on a wrestling scholarship. That's how I got to school. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. It, well, wow. Well, the good part was I got into school on a, a wrestling scholarship. The bad part was two weeks after I got there, they dropped the wrestling team. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what the hell? What do I do now? You know, this is not working out. And I was going to be a phys ed major. I wanted to be a gym teacher. And they dropped the phys ed program. So, oh, all yeah. right. So I don't really know what to do, but I always wanted to be an artist. You know, that's my was my secret. I wanted to study uh, fine arts and theater and and music and creative writing and stuff like that. But because I kind of I came from a blue collar background, that wasn't really a conversation or an option. So right. I, I had to get a job to pay for school. I couldn't ask my parents. So I walked into a French restaurant called the Big Tree Inn. You know, I put on my, my blue blazer. I had, a, I had one blazer. And before I went in, uh, it, was, it was 1978, I had long hair. So I'd walked around the restaurant a couple of times and everybody had short hair. I'm like, ah, oh, damn, I'm going to have to get my hair cut. Because you know, <laughs> they won't give me a job. So, so I went down to the dorm and I got my hair cut. You know, this is, you know, when you talk about being an entrepreneur, it's about taking risks. Yeah. And then you got to take a risk. And, and that risk, I guess, was, you know, getting my haircut and walking in this restaurant. And I walked in and, and they said, uh, do you have any experience? I said, yeah, I worked at all the great French restaurants in my hometown, like Bunny's Bar and Grill. So, uh, <laughs> the owner, he's like, ah, this kid's a character. You know, I don't know if we want him here because everyone's wearing tuxedos. And I, that's why I wanted a job because everybody was wearing a tuxedo. Okay. I wanted to wear a tuxedo. I had enough of work boots and jeans and, and sawdust. I wanted You're right. to class it up a little bit. So anyway, <laughs> they made me a bus boy. And after two weeks, they came to me as a family. And they said, Joe, listen, you're the worst bus boy we've ever hired. I mean, you're terrible. Like, <laughs> but, um, but the wife said to the, uh, her husband, like, he's always here on time. Always. You, you can always depend on him. And he had manners and he has some value. He doesn't know how to like carry a tray of soup without dumping it on somebody, but we can solve that problem. So Fred's like, ah, oh, geez, what am I going to do? So he gives me a book 
on wine called The Signet Guide to Wine. He goes, you go read this book and you come back on Monday. And if you've read it and uh, here's an empty bottle of wine at Corkscrew, if you can open the bottle of wine, you could read the book and you can tell me a little bit about it. I'll give you a job. And he walked away thinking, OK, he appeased his wife. He's yeah. Gotta, you know, and he figures he's never going to see me again. I'm not going to come back. So I went right, home. Right, right, right. I tried to figure out how to open the bottle of wine. I eventually got that. And then I read the book. And the book took me to places like Bordeaux and Burgundy and the Loire Valley and Tuscany and Spain and this place called Napa Valley, which I just happened to come from. And it was really a window to the world for, for someone like me. Because, you know, I was a mm. son of a lumberjack from a lumber mill town. I was never going to go hang out in Tuscany, you know, and I, I was right, right, right. So I walked in on yeah. Monday. I walked in on Monday and Fred's like, what are you doing here? I go, well, you said if I, I can open the bottle of wine. And I read the book. He goes, you read the book? I go, yeah, I read the book. He goes, you read that book? I said, yes, sir. I mean, I couldn't lie. I mean, I lied about <laughs> the other thing, but I said, yeah, I read the book. He goes, tell me three crews of Beaujolais which is a trick question because there's nine. I said, I looked at him, I said, Morgan, Fleuret, and Moulin-Vin. And he's like, oh, God darn it, I have to give him a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I wound up uh, working in that restaurant and wow. became a wine steward. And then when I was 22 years old, uh, I was a certified uh, sommelier for the Hyatt Regency Hotels down in Florida. Wow. Moved to and went on to create a wine list that won the wine spectator award of excellence and it was covered in all these magazines and the psalm today is very popular in 1982 that really weren't very many and the ones that were there usually worked in really stuffy french restaurants and now it's become much more of an american phenomenon with these very talented young men and women who are very well read and very sophisticated yeah um, back then it was all french wine there was very little very little california wine did you have to? I, so I watched that. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. There's a documentary called Psalm where following yeah. people who are studying for that test. So did yeah. you have to do that? Where you're? Yeah, I've studied. I got the uh, first two done. The first one wasn't really hard as far as I was concerned. The second one was very hard. The third one, I I wound up. That took me a number of years, and then then I I was thinking about going for my master's sommelier job. Uh, sommelier certificate, but I got hired by a winery mm. in Italy to be in sales and marketing. I'm like, I, okay, I don't want to be a psalm anymore. I, I don't want to work on Christmas or New Year's. Yeah, Eve. yeah. I want right, right. to eventually meet a woman who's not a cocktail waitress that day. And uh, which is nothing <laughs> wrong with cocktail waitress. Don't get me wrong. But that's the other thing about being an entrepreneur. You got to have a sense of humor. You can't because. Mm. People are so uptight and crazy sometimes. I mean, I learned from a couple of good guys. I, I went to college with Jeff Clark, who became the CEO of Kodak. And I don't know how he got that job, because when I went to college with him, all he did was play foosball, you know? <laughs> you know but I guess he was a pretty smart kid. Uh, but he's, I learned a lot from him. But having a sense of humor and, and communicating with people you learn communicating with people through the restaurant industry because every day you are face to face with somebody who wants something and you're there to give it to them and make sure that it's perfect. I mean, you want it to be perfect. You want their experience to be perfect. I mean, they're coming in and spending their money in this place and you want it to be perfect. So you right. 
you learn all kinds of interpersonal relationship skills and you learn selling because you know you're selling wine you're convincing someone that the 1970 Chateau La Tour is worth $500 or $600, which mm. I don't think it is, but you know, <laughs> that's just my opinion. You couldn't get it for $500. So let me ask you this, as someone who uh, sits at the table and, you know, not often, but every once in a while, someone gets poured a glass of wine and they taste it and they're like, oh, this doesn't taste right. When someone says that to you, and you know that it tastes not only right, but is like an amazing glass of wine. Are you just like, you're a moron? Or are you just like, hey, I'll get you no, a glass of wine? No, I was brought up really old school. You know, the customer's always right. There's a, te- you know, there's a technique you could use and say, you know, like, it's a little tight. Why don't we decant it and let it sit for 20 minutes? And if you don't like it after that, then I'll find you something else. You know, there's a ways to, again, it's like negotiating. And at the end of the day, if he doesn't or he or she doesn't like it, then, you know, we take it back and, and we find what they want. That's a lot like with producing wine. You know, I like German Riesling. I love German Riesling, but American consumers haven't really accepted American Riesling. So as much as I like it, it's better for me to produce Cabernet Sauvignon, which I know they're going to like. And as for that bottle of wine that, that they thought was bad, well, I had it for dinner that night. <laughs> it didn't go to waste. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, why don't we? Uh, so we're on your journey here, and you you make the jump to working in Italy, and so well, now I you're. For, I was working for a company, a winery, uh, based in Italy, but I was based in the United States, so I would go over there and meet people, and and, okay. then, and then that turned into working with some companies uh, from France and Spain and uh, Greece. And I worked for all these companies, uh, this company, two or three companies for the next 10 years until I wound up in Australia of all places. And I remember uh, coming home and saying to my wife, you know, remember that book I read? Well, I've been to every single one of those places I read about in the book. I mean, what an amazing epiphany. Yeah. Uh, couldn't believe it. Wow. Somebody, when I was 18 years old, if somebody said, oh, you know, you're going to go to Tuscany and, and hang out with uh, Frescobaldi and, and and drink these wines, I'd be like, yeah, you're crazy. That's, that's right. <laughs> so I wound up in Australia working for a company called Mildara Blast. And I was 39 years old and I was named president of the company here in North America. And that was a big leap. I yeah. was uh, in sales and marketing and, and stuff like that. And then they made me president of the company. So I immediately went to the library and got the Harvard Business School book on finance because I didn't know anything about finance. I didn't know what a profit and loss statement was. I didn't know what EBITDA was. I didn't know I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, I was a mm. I studied art in college. I didn't study business. So I had to learn really quickly. And the first thing I learned is hire really, really, really smart people. Yeah. Hire the smartest people you can get and then shut up and listen. <laughs> okay. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs have big egos, and and you do have to have an ego. You have to believe in yourself, but yeah. you have to listen to people. You know, you have to listen. You have to. It's the only way you're going to learn, and hopefully, you don't make any big mistakes. And with the Australian company, I met a guy named Greg Norman. I don't know if you heard about him, but he's a golfer. Yeah, yes. And uh, we created his wine brand, Greg Norman Estates, and I got to play golf with Greg and hang out with him. And uh, he was a very nice man. He's been a little controversial here recently, but 
when I met him, he was a very genuine, very nice person. And he was very happy that we were making his wines at a winery called Wolf Blast in Australia. And I would travel around the country and and promote it and develop it. And it was it was a lot of fun. And then later, I went on to become a vice president of a company called Behringer, which was a publicly traded company. And I had a nice job there, very nice people, great brands, uh, Behringer in, in Napa Valley. I met some amazing winemakers. I uh, met a guy named Ted Edwards from Fremark Abbey. He, he, was, he was up the road. He wasn't affiliated with Behringer. And I had this wonderful job. I had this great job. And then on a Tuesday in September, I was, you know, I'd been traveling all over the world and I was finally here in Cape Cod. And that morning, my wife called me and told me to turn on the TV. And uh, that was when the second plane had hit the tower. Mm. My friend's wife was in the first plane. Oh. And I had four friends in the tower that didn't get out. So wow. my boss in Australia, my boss in California the next week called me and said, listen, can you come out to California? And I said, no. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. Uh, I'm going to stay right here. I had this dream. I had this idea to start a company and I didn't know how I was going to do it. But the one thing that the two things that I lacked to do it was courage and conviction. And that day gave that to me. And I sat wow. down with my wife on the sofa. We opened a bottle of wine. I told her about this dream about becoming a, a wine producer in Napa Valley. And then and she kind of looked at me and <laughs> I can't tell you what she said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let me put it this way. We opened a second bottle of wine and somewhere like two o'clock in the morning, I think it was like 2 a.m. She goes, Joseph, you've been around this business since you were 18. If, if this is the next chapter in your life, then I guess you really don't have a choice, do you? I go, no, I don't. I don't really wow. have a choice. So I sat down and wrote my resignation letter because, you know, there's talking and there's doing. And I said, I'm yeah. Interested. And then the next week, we went to the bank and refinanced our house, which, you know, I was, I was listening to a podcast. I don't think people realize that a lot of entrepreneurs, when they start their businesses, they have to use assets other than banks because a bank doesn't want to give you $2 million to make wine. I mean, that's crazy. What are they going to do if you go under? Just give it to all their employees. It's, it's difficult. Right, right, right. hard to get financing. So. I wound up getting a home equity loan and a line of credit of like $150,000. And I had $150,000 in my life savings. And Dee and I went at it. And I went out to California and talked to a winemaker and said, listen, this is what I want to do. And I'm what's known as a negociant. So a negociant is a French business model. It was developed in the 1300s in Burgundy. And then later, it's been all over, all over Europe. So I don't own vineyards. I contract vineyards. Mm. I didn't own a winery. I worked inside someone else's winery. And in doing so, and, and I hired a professional winemaker as a consultant. He was part-time. And I would go and I would work with them. And, and that's what I would do. And I would, I would outsource a, a national sales force. And they'd just get paid commission. And it was a really, you know, I speak at Harvard Business School and I speak at the Wharton School and the young people today totally get it. They're like, oh, well, it's like a virtual company, but you're producing yeah. something. Yeah, that's it can be done that way. It doesn't have to be some fancy chateau. Right. There's a way to do it. You know, Marco Bear, he was a negotiator. He's one of the greatest producers of Chardonnay there is. 
in Napa Valley, uh, Christian Muex, who was from Bordeaux, later he was making wine in Bordeaux, selling it out of the back of his car, which I wound up doing too. And then he went on to buy Dominus and Chateau Petrus and became incredibly successful. But he started as his own entrepreneurial platform. And sometimes Americans don't, don't get it all the time, but then they realize, especially young people, they realize the value of it all and the yeah. quality is good and the story is good and it's true. It's not reaching. Then people embrace it. And wow. Yeah. So that's, that's the crazy part of being an entrepreneur. Well, what, well, first of all, I just want to say heartbroken for you and for other people who lost people that they loved on that day. But this story that you're telling about taking this incredible risk, we sort of like, we love to elevate people who just like went for it and they just threw it. They did everything and they just, they just took a big gamble. But what I love about you, you did that, but you knew what you were doing. <laughs> you had a tons of experience in this. You sort of knew what your approach was going to be to as much as you could. So it was a tremendous gamble, but it was backed by information and know-how and experience. So it wasn't just like dumb luck. Like you kind of got into this thing with a plan. Yeah, well, I kind of had a plan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe it wasn't written out exactly, but... Yeah, you know. well, we use the word fluid. Yeah. <laughs> so we shared the company actually started in my garage and my wife and i shared a laptop computer and our desk was a picnic table and she did all the books and then i would go to california and make the wine and, and do the marketing and do the website and we did everything because we didn't have a lot of money and i remember one day i said d i got a go to California. Can I bring the computer? She goes, no, you can't bring the computer. Okay. <laughs> you keep it. <laughs> I would try to figure out how to do a PowerPoint That's... presentation without a, a laptop computer. I eventually figured it out. That so, is, uh, That's what amazing. Happened was, what that was, I mean, I was, I was working like 24 seven. I was working these crazy hours every weekend doing tastings and stores and wine shops and dinners and charities and stuff like that and so this guy called me one day and was talking my ear off and I wasn't really I wasn't paying attention he was asking me all these questions and I, I wasn't really paying attention next thing I know Eric Asimov with the New York Times called me a producer to watch because that's who I was talking to mm. and that kind of changed everything wow now now all of a sudden I wasn't just Joseph Carr who had worked for Behringer or who had worked for all these other wineries or was a sommelier, Joseph Carr, wine producer. And, and I got a lot of credibility out of that. So all of a sudden, things started oh, wow. to change. Things started to change. And I thought everything was good. Everything was great. This is perfect. And then the price of grapes doubled and then went up another 20%. Mm. And then my biggest customer went bankrupt. Wow. And then we sat at the supper table. We weren't... She was crying. I was like, we'll get through this because we, we were going to lose our house. Jeez. We didn't figure something out. And I was out. I went out to California, met this guy named Tom Larson, who at the time he was letting me make wine inside his winery. And he was a grower and he knew growers. So he would introduce me to growers. And I told him what was going on. He goes, yeah, you're in trouble. 
Oh, thanks. I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> Jeez, helpful. And what happened was, I know it's a crazy story because everybody thinks the wine business is so crazy, glamorous, and all that. Well, I he was a cowboy. His father was a his father was a veterinarian, and they the the place they had had the Sonoma County Rodeo. So where I was staying, I would stay at his his guest house. And there was all this rodeo stuff and cows and horses and chickens running around. It wasn't glamorous at all. It didn't have any heat in the house. And I was out there and telling, we're talking, and we start talking about our fathers. Mm. And both of our dads passed away about the same time, about 10 years earlier. And we talk about our dads. Well, we have a bottle of wine. You know, and then we have a second bottle of wine. And then we're halfway through the third bottle of wine. We're laughing, we're crying, we're slapping each other on the back. And, and he said, you know, Joe, you should make a wine outside of Napa Valley because I can help you make it. And you should think about that. So I'm like, okay. Mm. He goes, go home and get some money. I'm like, again, <laughs> great idea, Tom. Thank you. I'll just go find that money tree. I know it's out there in the woods behind my house. All right. And I came home and I told Dee what I was going to do. And she's like, okay, how are you going to do that? And I went upstairs and I got this envelope and the envelope said, Joseph Carr, 401k, mm. $4,450.25. Oh my God. And I used that money to make the first vintage of a wine that turned out to be called Josh, Josh mm. Seller. I made a thousand cases. Took me a year and a half to do it. And I sold it out of the back of my car. And I called it Josh because that was my father's nickname. That's what mm. my mother told me. And I couldn't afford an artist to do the label. And my mom pulled out a piece of paper and she wrote his name down on a piece of paper. My mom had beautiful handwriting, calligraphy. And that was the label. That was Wow. It. That's that's the label we see, we see today. Yeah. Yep. And I wrote a story on the back about my dad. I was friends called him Josh, and, and he was a hardworking kind of guy, and, and uh, he appreciated value. And I felt that I could make a great wine at a great price. And that's what I did. Everybody thought I was nuts. I had people trying to just try to talk me out of it. And I was like, no, no, I think this is what people will want. Yeah. It's true. It's not made up. It's not fake. And the story about the journey is, is true and real. And it was an homage to my, my old man. who You know, he, he died and never saw it. But my mom was alive and she thought it was great. And, and Josh was born. And, and today uh, we're the number one premium selling brand and, and wine in the United States. Close to six million cases. That is incredible. And besides this amazing story that went into making it, I've been sipping from my glass as you've been talking, and it's delicious. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got a pretty incredible product with an amazing story behind it. So well done well, on all fronts. A, I, I work with a winemaker named Wayne Donaldson. He's from Australia. And he's really, I, I think when the book is written, because the book is going to get written someday about the history of California winemaking. And I know Josh Sellers is going to be front and center. I mean, we, we're, we're surpassing Kendall, we've surpassed Kendall Jackson and Robert Mondavi and, and all these other brands that had a lot more resources than we did. And Wayne Donaldson, I hope someday is recognized as probably one of the greatest California winemakers in the history of California because he, he knew, well, we kind of 
banged heads a little bit at the beginning because I was so like, I don't want to say it's a control freak, but I just wanted things a certain way. And mm-hmm. then one day he came to me and he really realized how important it was, not just the wine, but my fit, you know, my, my dad and, and all that. And he really understood it. And then he took it. He just owned it. He just owned it. And he didn't stop. He, and he took it to a place and a quality level that I was not. This is the part where you have to remember to shut up and listen. Yeah. And it's hard and realize your limitations. And I realized at that time that Wayne Donaldson was a guy that was much more qualified than I was. I would, I'll always be the fighting spirit. But once you know, once you get an Australian on your team, he's, he's your mate. He's going to watch your back. He's going to go to the mat. He's going to do everything for you. And he did. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it was not yeah. easy at all. But he was determined. And the Deutsch family, who, who eventually bought the company, I mean, they were a family-owned company. And they, they realized this wasn't some concept thing. This wasn't some marketing ploy. It was somebody's legacy. And it was important. And those are the things that everybody wants to be in this thing. But boy, you, you got to have those two words, courage and conviction. Yeah. Oh, wow. What, and, that what, brings us, and that brings us to Josh Giving. Yes. Yes. I, I wanted to ask you about that. So you are well known not only for your amazing products, but your incredible uh, generosity. So what's, yeah, tell us about that. Well, you know, somebody called me a philanthropist not too long ago. And I was like, I don't understand that word. Because uh, <laughs> where I came from, there was no such thing. There wasn't. Nobody. I mean, I grew up poor. I mean, the people around me didn't have a lot. But what they did have, they would share. And I learned at a very young age this concept of bake sale. Of right. Bake sale. Okay. We're going to support the church or the, bank, the high school band, or we're going to get this kid off to camp or we're going to do whatever but we're going to have a bake sale and every month you know my grandmother and my mother and my sister and my aunts and uncles they would it was a bake sale and that was that was philanthropy yeah taking care of one another standing alongside one another it was part of my dna since i was a little boy you know we we couldn't wait for the bake sale because we couldn't get Aunt Ethel to cook, you know, bake us the cookies we wanted every week, but we, right, right. we could get them there. And then that's how right. I did it. And, yeah. I, and I talk about that. I mean, you know, I spoke at Harvard Business School and I said, well, you know, it's great to have, you need the whales to write big checks for big things, but charity begins on a very grassroots level and can be much more powerful than the guy that writes the million dollar check. So, so, so Josh, yes, and my yeah. father, my father was about you know giving and taking care of people. My mother, much, my mother, I didn't know this. My mother passed away last year, and my sister told me she essentially gave away her pension. She mm. was giving things to food banks and the church and all kinds of, of things. Not fifty dollars here, hundred dollars there, but that's a lot of money for an. 88-year-old lady who was was a librarian. Right, right, yeah. So so the whole giving back, and in the same sentence, deciding to stand alongside Mm. someone to help one of them. That, to me, was the message I was 
I was always trying to say is if you stand alongside some someone and you work together, you get something out of what you give. I, I, trust me, more than you could possibly imagine. And it's profound. It has a pr- profound effect on other people and has a profound effect on you and your family. And that's the joy in Josh giving. So we created, you know, it started around Thanksgiving, bringing people together for a good cause. And I got to meet this amazing person, this international celebrity, Josh Groban, who turned out to be mm. probably one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And we raised $100,000 to for Sing for Hope. And Josh and I, we had a piano painted by a painter in L.A., and we went and donated it to a, a VA hospital as a permanent installation. And we got to meet the veterans, and Josh was there, and, and he drove himself to the thing. That was what kills me. Now. Like, Josh Grover, like, we'll send you a car. You know, No, no, I'll just drive. Like, drive. L.A. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want to speak. And that's the kind of guy he was, you know? Well, he... he- he should have uh, he should have hitchhiked in your honor. No, not in LA. Not in <laughs> I didn't know if I take the subway. But anyways, <laughs> it was an amazing event. We got lots of feedback on it, and then in conjunction with it, while I was out there, uh, we had Josh Giving was something that happened all over the country. We did a, a number of grassroots things in San Diego, and Denver, and Boston, New York City, uh, Nebraska from food banks to bookstores to, you know, raising money for a hospital, some little things. And then we had two big things. We had the, the thing with Josh Groban, and, and then we also raised $100,000 to an organization called Pets for Vets, uh, pup, uh, pup, excuse me, American Humane's Pups for Patriots. And it's an amazing foundation that takes shelter dogs, trains them, and then gives them to veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, wow. So we went out, I met, I met a, a gentleman, he was a veteran, he served in the Tampa Police Department for 20 years until he had to retire because of a PSTD, a post-traumatic stress disorder. They got him a dog, and a guy who wouldn't leave his house for a year, all wow. of a sudden started leaving his house. And so wow. the, the impact was powerful i mean amazingly powerful to see that and uh oh, my father would have appreciated that you know my father was was in the united states army and I learned at a very young age to uh, have respect and, and gratitude for uh, men and women that served in the yeah you know, the so, well that that's incredible and for people who are listening and want to participate and support these types of charities that you are supporting what do you recommend that they do is there a certain website they should well, you go to go on, you can go on the uh, josh sellers website or instagram and, and there'll be links to how to give i mean we were doing a match during november of people and then we were also picking out if you would come and tell us about the you know the platforms and the campaigns that they're involved in and we, we would uh, we would come in and match some of their funding so we're we're pretty aggressive about it. We certainly want to do the right thing and make sure it fits. But it all comes back to gratitude. Yeah, I learned that a very long time ago, and it's something to never forget. And the, I mean, we're here today, and this, I mean, I'm talking to Entrepreneur Magazine, 1978. You know, the over under of me 
that's that's amazing well what else you know what i was featured i was featured in forbes magazine and as soon as it came out i went and bought uh like 50 copies and i sent it to every girl that broke up with me in high school and college (laughs) 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 Uh, you gotta have a sense of humor that's incredible oh my god that's so funny well, it strikes me that this business that you got into and are have done so well in, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times, or you're sharing a bottle of wine with someone, you're sharing two bottles of wine, but it's it's a community thing. And and it makes me think as we're nearing the five o'clock hour here in New York, I've opened this bottle of uh Josh Cabernet and I'm gonna light a Light up the uh, the fire pit in the backyard, invite a neighbor over, and make sure this doesn't go to waste. You know, that's the thing. That's the joy that I get when I hear things like that, or I hear, oh, we just served your wine at our wedding, or, well, we raised a glass to celebrate a life well lived. That, that's becoming, you know, being in the fabric of people's lives in those instances with something that we created, that's, that's the real win for me. The money's good, yeah. don't get me wrong, but the uh, but that, that's that's yeah, but that's lasting. But, but yeah. to be an entrepreneur, you have to have courage and conviction. You have to remember where you came from, and you have to have somebody that that believes in you. And my wife believed in me, and she never uh, mm. gave up on me. And anything I do from here on out is really dedicated to her. She passed away of brain cancer five years ago, so. Um, so this, this sorry, this Josh legacy. I mean, I get all the credit, but it was really her that was the backbone. I think if she'd let me wow. take the laptop, the computer to California, I would have lost it, and we would have been up the creek. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's that's incredible! What a beautiful tribute, and it's been inspiring and amazing talking to you and hearing your story and all the amazing things you've done and will continue to do. So. So raising a glass once again, man, cheers to your pop and your wife and everyone who's been so instrumental in your success. That's our episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Get a Real Job comes out every Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you harvest your favorite podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a share. Big people. Go to entrepreneur.com for new episodes of this and to listen to our other great podcasts. Thanks.